day and welcome to the ARM second quarter of the financial year ending 2024 earnings conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question, you will need to press star 11 on your telephone. You will then hear an automated message advising your hand is raised. To withdraw your question, please press star 11 again. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Ian Thornton, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, Abigail. Um, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Ian Thornton, and I'm the Head of Investor Relations at ARM. I'd like to welcome you to our earnings conference call for the second quarter of the fiscal year ending March 31st, 2024. I'm joined today by Rene Haas, the Chief Executive Officer of ARM, and Jason Child, ARM's Chief Financial Officer. Hopefully you will all have downloaded and read the shareholder letter. If not, it is available on the ARM Investor Relations website at investors.arm.com. As the shareholder letter provides a rich update on our strategic progress in the quarter, we will dispense with the prepared remarks from the CEO and CFO and instead focus on Q&A. Before we begin, I'd like to remind everyone that during the course of this conference call, I will discuss forecasts, targets, and other forward-looking information regarding the company and its financial results. While these statements represent our best current judgment about future results and performance as of today, our actual results are subject to many risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results to differ materially from what we expect. In addition to any risks that we, might, that we highlight during this call, important risk factors that may affect our future results and performance are described in our registration statement on Form F1 filed with the SEC on September the 14th, 2023. ARM assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking statements which speak only as of the date they are made. In addition, we will refer to non-GAAP financial measures during the discussion. Reconciliations of certain of these non-GAAP financial measures to their most directly comparable GAAP financial measures and a discussion of certain projected non-GAAP financial measures that we are not able to reconcile without unreasonable efforts and supplemental financial information can be found in the shareholder letter that we released earlier today. The shareholder letter and other earnings related materials will be available on our website at investors.arm.com and I'll now hand you over to Rene who will make a brief opening statement before we go to your questions. Uh, <clears throat> thank you Ian and uh, as Ian mentioned we have uh, given you the shareholder letter uh, in an attempt to minimize the opening remarks by uh, myself and Jason, but I can't resist. I'll just start with a few comments to, to kick off. Uh, we are very uh, pleased following um, the IPO process to kick off our very first uh, quarter as a public company, uh, and the quarter was, was excellent. Uh, we had record revenue, uh, really fueled by uh, demand for all ARM products, which has driven our licensing uh, numbers up over 100% year on year. Uh, this is largely driven by what I would consider as a, uh, an AI uh, R&D super cycle, uh, where people are investing more and more in new technologies to uh, take advantage of the, of the huge opportunity going forward. Uh, on the royalty side, uh, slightly down year on year. Uh, however, the, the new businesses that we have emphasized in terms of our new growth strategy into the cloud and automotive uh, were up approximately 20%. Um, and, uh, and the financial results relative to profitability were, uh, were excellent. So in summary, uh, very, very pleased about the first quarter uh, and very, very pleased about the results we've shown um, as a, a, the first of our many quarters going forward as a public company. So, uh, so with that, I will turn it over, I suppose, to, uh, to Abigail to, uh, to queue up the questions. Thank you. At this time, we'll conduct the question and answer session. We ask that you limit yourself to two questions today. As a reminder to ask a question, you will need to press star 11 on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. To withdraw your question, please press star 11 again. One moment for our first question. Our first question comes from Toshio Hari with Goldman Sachs. Your line is open. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for taking the question. Um, I had two questions, um, maybe one for Renee. You know, I think your royalty business was up mid single digits or 5% uh, sequentially, uh, and I think units were down uh, about 5% sequentially. So can you speak to uh, what drove um, 
your your revenue there? Is it is it chip ASPs? Is it uh, you know royalty rates, or is it a combination of both? I think during the IPO, you know, you guys had talked extensively about the transition from V8 to V9. So I'm guessing that was one of the bigger drivers. But if you can provide a little bit of context, uh, what drove your royalty business on a sequential basis? That would be helpful. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Uh, and you're right. It is largely driven by the transition to uh, to V9 accelerating, uh, particularly across the the smartphone segment. Uh, Additionally, as we had mentioned earlier in our discussion with, the, with analysts, uh, we're seeing growth now across the automotive and uh, cloud infrastructure business, and those uh, have uh, different royalty rates than uh, our smartphone business does. So as a result, what you're seeing is that even with units down, uh, the overall numbers are, are actually up in terms of revenue. Great. Um, and then as my follow-up, um, during the IPO, you had shared with us that roughly, I think it was 97% of uh, estimated royalties under contract in fiscal 25 kind of being locked in from a royalty rate perspective, uh, 81% for fiscal 26. So I was hoping now that you know a couple of months has, has, has gone by, if you can provide an update on those numbers. Thank you so much. Yep. Uh, yeah, again, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, and I would say uh, we're about at the same level uh, in terms of where we are in terms of mile markers uh, towards progress. Uh, we're still confident in terms of the numbers that we had, had talked about in the past, but more importantly, uh, everything's tracking as we would um, expect at this point in time. So uh, those numbers are still unchanged. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Ambrish Srivasava with BMO Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hi, thank, thank you very much. Um, my first question is, if I look at the fiscal year guide, uh, given you had such a big upside on the uh, licensing side, please, versus what we were modeling for, what's the, what's the mix embedded in the guide between royalties and uh, licensing? Yeah, the well for the so if you kind of unpack our expectations for the back half of this year, the next two quarters, we're expecting royalties uh, will flip to positive. I call it single-digit growth uh, in Q3, uh, and then by Q4 we expect to see double-digit growth on a percentage basis. Um, licensing we uh, expect to continue to be strong. Um, I, I do expect uh, our assumptions on Q3. Uh, you know, we do have some lumpiness with our licensing business, especially with ASC 606. So, so we do have some, as we always have, some large deals that are in play. As of right now, uh, I think versus what we thought a quarter ago, uh, I think there's there's going to be a little more falling into Q4 versus Q3. So, I think you know, with with our guidance uh, for Q3, our um, expectations are to be. Uh, somewhere in that kind of call it zero to ten percent growth on a year-on-year -year basis, um, uh, but we expect pretty significant growth uh, because we do expect um, um, some pretty big license deals coming in Q4. In terms of the, I guess your, the the mix of of, of revenue split, um, I, you know, I, hard to say at this point. It's going to be, I'd say, yeah, closer to 50-50. Then, um, uh, but but that really depends on how strong the royalty recovery is uh, in Q4. There's you know all sorts of industry reports, and you know, I think if you look at look at most of the guidance as well as where I have a pretty easy comp from a year ago, uh, it could get maybe closer to 60% of total. Uh, but but we'll see. Got it, got it. No, I think you gave enough enough details. And my second question, a little bit longer term, on AI, um, you you guys have been pretty detailed about giving us a percent. I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, 43% of royalties um, have, uh, are driven by AI. Um, I just wanted to understand going forward, what's going to be the driver? Is it, and I'm assuming that majority of the 43% is on the edge. So as, as we look forward, is it going to be more as we have seen with Grace Hopper, which obviously volumes are very small. Is it going to be um, more infrastructure uh, driven, i.e. something like Hopper or the data data center hyperscalers, or is it more going to be more of the same, more on the edge on the mobile side? Thank you. Yeah, um, <clears throat> so this is a very, very fast-moving market relative to the models that are being released that are almost on a, uh, 
on a daily basis, uh, combined with just how quickly some of these agents are moving uh, across different devices. So when you think about, for example, the, the endpoints, um, a PC or a smartphone that could be running a chat GPT agent or Microsoft Copilot, just a quarter or two ago, we may not be classifying them as devices that were, were running AI. So our expectation is that increasingly, all of the devices that exist uh, in the overall value chain from the cloud to the endpoint, and the endpoint can be the smallest uh, sensor uh, with a compute engine, will need some level of AI capability, which is why our licensing activity has been as strong as it is. Uh, people are, are looking to add as much capability in terms of compute to capture the workloads that are being developed. And in some cases, it's really a function of making sure you have enough compute capacity to run the model when you don't even know yet what the model is. So I think we are in a very interesting time relative to how this overall market is gonna play out. Um, to specifically answer your question, whether it's the endpoint or the cloud, uh, both. And I think it's gonna be a rapid acceleration across the next few years, where a few years from now, uh, we won't talk about the percentage of devices that have AI in them. It will be sort of table stakes that they all do. Got it. Thank you, Renee. Good luck. Thanks. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Vivek Arya with Bank of America. Your line is open. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, Renee, for my first one, I'm curious, uh, you know, you had the IPO two months ago and the process started uh, before that. What have been the big changes in your macro and industry assumptions, positive or negative, since the team went through that uh, process, any, any color by end market geography? Um, and specifically what I'm trying to get to is that if you look at uh, the way you were thinking about uh, royalty revenues in uh, December and the next few quarters, have they changed in, in any way, positive or negative, uh, given any you know, potential changes in your macro uh, assumptions? Yeah, so thanks for the question. Uh, we, we haven't changed anything in our models that we're talking about publicly relative to um, the years out forecast in terms of what uh, any assumptions are relative to the, to the numbers. But going back to the commentary uh, that I made on the previous question, I do think what we're seeing from a macro standpoint is people figuring out uh, across every end device that's being built. And again, that end device can be a smartphone, it can be a base station, it can be a, a laptop. People are figuring out how to make sure they have enough compute capability to take advantage of these applications and models and agents that are being introduced almost, almost daily. So from the perspective of have we changed our models, not anything we're talking about publicly, but what I can say and feel, and again, you see it relative to the licensing activity being as strong as it is, there is, there is absolutely a, a rush to ensure that there is enough compute capacity in the end devices. What, one, of the, um, one of the enemies of, of, of growth in our, in our business is getting to good enough from a compute standpoint, and we are, we are nowhere close to good enough. And that ends up meaning a drive for R&D to figure out uh, just how to, uh, to handle all these new uh, capabilities. Thank you. And uh, for my um, follow-up, uh, you know, there's recently been excitement about uh, the combination of Windows and, and ARM. I, I know there have been previous uh, attempts uh, which um, right, were not as successful. I'm curious, Renee, how do you think about the potential for uh, Windows to succeed on ARM-based uh, devices. Is that a you know tangible factor for 24? Is, is that a factor for 25 and uh, beyond? Just give us your perspective on uh, you know how successful it can be and, and what is different uh, this time versus the prior attempts uh, that uh, Windows has had in dealing, uh, interacting with, with ARM technology. Yeah, on, uh, the, the Windows and ARM uh, ecosystem is one that I have a, a, a personal history with, having been there from the, from the very, very beginning. Um, and, and we have come a long, long way from that point relative to readiness of the application ecosystem, uh, readiness of developers, uh, native applications. 
So I think from a software standpoint, uh, everything is now in place for the, for the next growth cycle. One, one major uh, ecosystem, not called Windows, has moved over 100%. And I think what they've proved is that there's a amazing battery life, amazing performance, and amazing application uh, compatibility across a number of different uh, dimensions. Uh, you can run Windows on that uh, alternate ecosystem and get really, really good performance. So I think we are on the on the cusp of uh, of getting over this hill. Uh, I feel very very good about the growth projections for Windows on ARM. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Charles Shi with Needham and Company. Your line is open. Hey, uh, good morning, good afternoon. Uh, thanks for letting me ask a couple questions. Uh, maybe the first one I want to ask, uh, since um, Export Control U.S. government put out there all the rules and that they recently updated that, I wonder if uh, you can provide a comment on whether that has any impact on ARM's business. And specifically, since you have a really distinct uh, business model, especially on the royalty side, um, in, uh, to the extent that when your customer may be put on the entity list, are you still able to collect the royalties? And um, that, that's, a, that's a related part of the question. Thanks. Yeah, so for, for starters, uh, every time these new export uh, rules come out, we uh, have a team of folks in our trade compliance group that go through the information uh, in a very detailed way and, and trying to understand exactly how it might impact our company. Uh, I, I can say that uh, we obviously would comply with any kind of export restrictions that apply to our technology or, or what we what we build. Uh, the latest the latest round uh, of um, uh, documentation that came back from uh, from the U.S. <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, I would say not so much. Uh, in fact, probably not at all in terms of the impact there. Uh, generally speaking, the impact to ARM uh, is not that significant for for two reasons. Uh, one. The components and pieces that we build uh, are generally under the thresholds that have been uh, listed by the United States government in terms of export control. Uh, and secondly, uh, in the areas where there's a de minimis content in terms of U.S. people working on the design, because much of our technology is actually designed and developed outside the United States uh, in continental Europe and the United Kingdom, uh, we're not we're not impacted quite uh, quite so much. So. Generally speaking, the, the, the last set of rules uh, did not impact ARM, and, and we have, broadly speaking, not seen a large impact there. To your question relative to uh, how it works in terms of do we collect royalties if someone's on the, on the entity list, et cetera, uh, it's pretty simple. If, if an end product that contains our technology can't be shipped and they, there's no revenue to be derived, then, then we feel the, the ripple effect of that. Uh, again, in the in the last quarter, uh, no no impact from that. And as we forward uh, forecast to the guidance that we gave for the remainder of the year, uh, nothing that we see on the horizon that's impacted there. Uh, thanks, Renee. Uh, maybe a second question I want to ask uh, um, is on operating margin. Uh, you provided that the full year operating expense. What you expect? It kind of implies the fiscal Q4 margin is going to be down. I mean, operating margin is going to be down. I mean, even if I back out that one time, uh, increasing Social Security taxes, roughly $45 million, uh, it's still down a little bit. So how should we think about what's driving that kind of year-end uh, margin weakness? And how should we think about going into next fiscal year? I know you have a long-term 60% operating margin target, but how do we get from here to that 60%? I mean, on uh, annual basis. Thanks. Yeah, I'll let uh, I'll let Jason take that one. So yeah, so uh, I, the way I'd answer it is the margin. I, I think it, at the midpoint, yeah, it's in kind of the the high 20-ish percent range. Obviously, the expenses I'm giving are independent of whether we come in at the you know middle or or high end or even low end of the range. Um, if you if you assume those op that opex and you and you also account for the one time impact on Social Security, which relates to the uh, the stock vesting that is was was tied to the IPO, um, it, that's about 600 basis points of impact. Uh, so I think if you, if you you know the midpoint applies somewhere around 20 ish 8 ish percent. If you take out that adjustment, that would put you in the kind of the mid 30s. 
uh, and you know, low 30s if you're at the bottom end of the estimate, and you'd be closer to you know, low 40s if you're at the high end of guidance, or maybe high 30s. Um, and so that's that's the mechanics in Q4. Going forward, I would say, um, you know, we, we do expect to deliver incremental margin uh, in the in the I would say in the medium term, uh, i.e., over the next few years, that will approach start to approach that 60% target that we're, we're aiming towards. Uh, however, you just saw we've, we've actually added about 1,000 people in the last year, and, and most of that uh, is because of the headcount, uh, mostly engineers, about 85% of those heads that we added in the last year are engineers. And those folks are specifically working on the compute subsystem and the increased kind of complexity needed with, uh, with all the designs uh, that folks bought this quarter and are gonna, you know, uh, forecasted to buy in the coming quarters. Uh, and so uh, so that will put maybe a little bit of pressure uh, in Q4, but but I still um, expect you to see us deliver, you know, solid 40 plus percent uh, overall margin for this year uh, and then certainly for next year. And and I do expect us no change in our trajectory to get to that 60% margin over, you know, the coming years. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate the color. Thank you. Our next question. Our next question comes from Chris Casso with Wolf Research. Your line is open. Yes, thank you. Uh, good, good afternoon. Um, the question uh, is another one on AI, uh, and obviously a lot of discussion about AI capabilities and client devices. Can you go into a little more detail about how ARM monetizes that? Uh, is it, you know, from a higher uh, per chip uh, royalty? Is it from a better mix at your customers, maybe some higher device ASPs? How do, you, how do you see that playing out over time as AI gets embedded in client devices? Broadly speaking, the way I would think about it is whenever you're running one of these AI clients or assistants or agents, it's going to require a significant uptick in terms of compute capability, both in terms of uh, if there's an in-situ uh, accelerator uh, and or through the CPU complex, uh, keeping in mind that in a client device, when you run these AI agents or whenever you're running something that's going to be a, a co-pilot of some sort, nobody wants to see their battery life suddenly go down 40% in terms of uh, everything that was involved in running the algorithms. So what that means for us uh, in the broad sense is I expect it's going to be a, a higher need for more compute capacity. Uh, we'll see more advanced cores, we'll see larger cores, more V9, which in the end end game uh, should mean higher royalty rates for us. That would be our our our, our belief going forward in terms of just the, the mega trend. Got it. Um, if, if I could just go back, and, and Jason, go back to, to some of the comments on OPEX, uh, you spoke about them in, in terms of operating margin. Uh, but just as we look at modeling operating expenses as we go into next year, obviously it sounds like we should take out that one-time uh, Social Security tax in the fourth quarter. But what, what do you – well, I, I guess what would be the, the, the path of OPEX as you go into next year, and to what extent is that dependent on the revenue stream? Or, you know, is, is there a uh, – are, are you modulating OPEX according to revenue where you're just spending where you need it? Yeah, I don't. Um, in terms of uh, providing guidance for next year, I'm not not ready to do that. I would say kind of our our long term model approach, uh, you know, isn't really any different. Um, so I'm not ready to you know kind of go provide any updates to that. Um, but but I I would expect um, we definitely will be growing opex uh, less than revenue, <laughs> and so I do expect to get incremental margin. I I just I can't say exactly. Um, kind of what the quantum is for next year until we get a little later into this year. All right, fair enough. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Andrew Gardner with City. Your line is open. Uh, thank you very much for taking the question. Um, I had one on licensing uh, to start with. Uh, clearly, you beat expectations quite handily in the quarter on that front. Um, and I suppose this was a part of the business that during the IPO process, you explained 
was an area where you guys had pretty good visibility. It was fairly predictable given the timing of contract renewals. So, you know, was the beat a pull forward of demand, or you know, are you seeing the, uh, as you put it, Renee, the AI super cycle? Is that driving upside to the pipeline that you had had there earlier in the year? Yeah, thank you for the question. It's a good question. I would say it was expansion of deals that we had visibility on. Uh, what we have generally pretty good visibility is when when our renewals do and or when our customer is going to be looking at uptakes of, of new technology. I think what we saw broadly speaking was the, the partners that we knew about that we were expecting deal closure, uh, their appetites got bigger over the quarter and they took more technology so the size of the deals were larger. I'd say the, the one thing I would add versus expectations, in the quarter if you look at you know, revenue certainly growing 28% is strong, but also RPO or, or total backlog actually grew 700 million uh, both year on year and even sequentially quarter over quarter. Um, uh, and, you know, if you actually do the math on, on, on total bookings uh, or RPO bookings, revenue plus change in, in RPO, you could actually see that we did over 1.1 billion in bookings in the quarter, which is the best quarter in our history. So, so that, that definitely, to Renee's point, um, while we had uh, insight into the pipeline, the size of the deal did expand and get bigger. And certainly uh, a lot of that we think is tied to this kind of uh, deeper investment in R&D given everything that's happening in, in AI uh, currently. Well, and I suppose then you, you lean into my next question because in the, in the letter, you say that of that RPO, you're expecting um, to recognize 28% of it over the next 12 months, which so given roughly where expectations were following what you guys had um, given us through the IPO process, it looks like you've got, you've already got two thirds of your, of that licensing revenue in, in hand. So even if you, you know, even if you don't sign that many more deals, it, it looks like you, you're pretty well set for the rest of the year in terms of licensing. So is the, the expectation is not too conservative on that front at this point. Uh, you're talking about expectations for next year or the back half of this year? Well, just, they're sort of 12 months forward, right? So what you're saying about 28% of the RPO mm -hmm. to be recognized over the next 12 months. Uh, well, we, we feel good about the guidance. I and mean, we did increase the targets for the back half of this year versus, uh, you know, uh, versus what we thought at IPO. And, we haven't talked about next year, but but certainly given the tailwinds that I think exist on the licensing side, and then now that we are seeing uh, signs of progress on the royalty side, uh, you know, not ready to finalize the numbers, but but there definitely are tailwinds. Yeah, I think you're reading it correctly. Uh, to Jason's point, a uh, billion dollars in bookings in a quarter. Um, there were years where we didn't do that in a, in a year, um, minus a few hundred million. So we, we are very, very confident about the, the level of backlog we've built up and how that gets recognized uh, over time. So we feel very confident about, about that. But more, more importantly um, from the financials, not to minimize that, uh, it does underscore very, very strong demand for ARM technology relative to the R&D investment uh, that people are making. We see no, in, in the midst of, Inflationary pressures, geopolitics, lots of unknowns about end markets. What we're not seeing is people pushing out deals, not making investments, staying with the current generation of technology for a cycle. None of that whatsoever. Uh, what we're seeing is sort of a, as, as, as much as possible, an acceleration to make sure that there's much, as much compute capacity in the end devices that are being, being built. L largely back on the AI piece, because people, people, because these models are changing so fast and being evolved so quickly, the understanding of what amount of compute capacity you need to take advantage of the capabilities that are being introduced is a bit of an unknown. What you do know is that you probably don't have enough compute in the devices that you've designed today. So adding to it is critical, which is why we, we saw such the expansion this last quarter. Thank you very much. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Harlan, sir, with JP Morgan. Your line is open. 
Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my question. Um, another one on licensing. You know, as you mentioned, there's some timing-related dynamics and revenue rec dynamics regarding licensing in the December and the March quarter. Some of the uncertainty is to be expected, especially on large deals, as you mentioned. So on the fiscal second half, is more of the uncertainty on timing of licensing deal closure or or more around the revenue recognition profile of those signed deals? Uh, timing. Yeah, we we okay, we're you know, I mean deals deal I mean, as Renee just mentioned a moment ago, uh, deals certainly have the capacity to change in overall size or or quantum, but but that's that that for the most part usually provides more upside. So in this case, it's really just about timing, uh, and and you know as these deals I mean given we we did 1.1 billion in bookings last quarter, these these are very very large deals that require lots of complicated approvals that go to the highest levels of these organizations that can take a while, and that's hard for us to predict. Um, and so it's it's certainly uh, you know our view on I, I would I would not evaluate just Q3. I would evaluate Q3 plus Q4, uh, and right. plus yeah. Q4 uh, is what we took up in our guidance yeah. and and feel very good about the the trajectory. Yeah. So you know ha having been with the company 10 years uh, and, and watched how this process works, uh, we generally have pretty good visibility on a six month basis. But to tell you whether something is going to close in December or January. Given the fact that there may be a lot of legal language to review, it takes approvals, December is a holiday period, uh, could be a bit out of our control. So to the level of being potentially conservative on a quarter timing, I think that's potentially the, uh, the detail you're extracting here. But our confidence that the deal will actually close uh, is quite high, given that we know what the needs are, which is why, to Jason's point, uh, the guidance went out. But, but more importantly, and, I, and I, I give that example of December, January as yes. uh, both a figurative one and a real one, uh, because that's exactly what we might be looking at here, and it makes a big difference on which side of the boundary it hits. But we're, our degree of confidence that the technology will be needed by the end customers is, is quite high. Perfect. And then maybe mid to longer term, you know, the step up in royalty rates over the next few years is, is in large part driven by the adoption of your total compute or compute subsystem solutions where you're not only delivering more CPU or MCU cores to your customers, but also integrating some of the key subsystem blocks like bus architecture, cache memory management, memory controllers, security, et cetera. Saves your customers significant engineering design and validation costs. In return, you guys get a higher royalty rate. TCS has been very successfully adopted by several of your large mobile customers. Can you guys just give us a sense on the traction of driving more subsystem solutions into your automotive, industrial, PC, data center, compute customers, and any sort of way to quantify the momentum there? So we just announced for our infrastructure business, our CSS partner program, where we are engaged with people like TSMC, uh, Cadence Synopsys, uh, Intel, et cetera, to more uh, rapidly accelerate partners who want to, to move into this um, solution space. That's really been driven by the fact that the demand uh, for this uh, has been higher than we expected. And if you, if you just step back and think about, well, well, why would this be of such high interest to end customers? From if a customer is designing a uh, an SOC that had one microcontroller core into it or two, uh, handing IP to that customer, they then develop their chip, they put their IP around it, and then ultimately uh, de develop the end product. That that model works very well for certain segments, but if you're trying to build something that is for uh, a laptop or a cloud infrastructure or a 5G. Mm -hmm and you're putting down 16 CPUs, 30 CPUs, 100 CPUs, and you're trying to incorporate the fabric, and you're trying to incorporate the, the cache memory interfaces, and you're also trying to build a chip that used to take you 16 weeks from TSMC to now 26 weeks, you've got 10 weeks added to your cycle time, uh, and now the, the subsystem part that you have to integrate is really hard. So particularly in the cases where many of these subsystems are exactly what we just described. They are the compute. They are the block that ARMS delivers. 
it actually makes a ton of sense for partners to look for us to, to provide that. That applies extremely well, as I said, to the markets I mentioned, including automotive, ADAS, uh, including mobile. So we are, we are mm-hmm. oversubscribed on this. Um, and again, on the guidance standpoint, not going to change any words that we provided in terms of what the overall future looks like. But it is, a, it is I think, a huge value driver for our, our end customers. So we, we see this direction of travel only increasing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yep. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Ross Seymour with Deutsche Bank. Your line is open. Hi, guys. Thanks for me asking a question. For my first question, I just wanted to get into the implied December and, well, actual December guide and implied March guide. It looks like you're missing the street a little bit in December, but then beating it in March. Is that just the lumpiness of the licensing you've mentioned a bunch of times? And I guess more precisely, what's the general expectation on the royalty side of things, especially in the March, considering that uh, there's lots of moving parts cyclically right now, but seasonally, that doesn't tend to be the best of quarters for your mobile business? Smart, uh, the smartphones, et cetera. So just the puts and takes on those would be helpful. Sure. So, yeah, on the licensing side, exactly as we described, uh, our six-month visibility is, is, is very, very good. Our month-to-week visibility is a little fuzzier. And uh, as a result, we're going to err on the side of caution and, and not overstep, but make sure we deliver on what we say we're going to do. And as I said, we're extremely confident in the deals that we've identified and the need for the technology. I'll let uh, Jason comment a bit more in terms of the the direction of travel on royalties. But broadly, uh, we've seen three quarters of sequential growth. Uh, We have a lot of strong indicators from partners that uh, we are out of the the trough and, and climbing out of the trough. Uh, relative to the direction of travel, the slope of the curve. I'll let just Jason sort of speak to that. But generally speaking, our, our indicators are, are pretty strong as far as that market goes. And as I said, in the other markets where we continue to grow and gain share in cloud and automotive, our confidence level is, is, is quite good. Hey, Ross, on the, uh, on the royalty side, uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, in this most recent quarter, we, um, we did see positive sequential growth uh, return. Uh, you know, and if you look at some of our largest partners, uh, they've seen the same. If you, you know, our guidance, which is in part, you know, we are looking at some of the industry reports as well as also uh, looking at, you know, some of the, the forecasts from our partners. And I think we're, we're forecasting something pretty similar to what others are saying, and that is we're expecting to see, you know, somewhere in the probably high, kind of mid to high single digits sequential growth. Uh, in um, in the next, I would say, next two quarters, each of the next two quarters, uh, and so when you when you factor that into the the downturn that really kind of took hold last year, that means you're going to see year-on-year growth uh, in royalties get back to you know I'd say positive single digits uh, in Q3, uh, and then uh, I'd say get you know definitely you know kind of well into the double-digit growth. Uh, by Q4, uh, and then you know we'll see from there. But I but but obviously the comps uh, certainly are easier as well in the first half of next year. So so I, I think we have a a good setup. And as long as this uh, this kind of recovery that us and and our partners are seeing uh, continues to come to fruition, uh, it should be a great setup. Thanks for that, Jason uh, and Renee. I, I guess for my second question. This has been a bit of a rolling correction. You just talked about some of the dynamics coming out the other side, thankfully. But some of the other markets, automotive, industrial, uh, broad-based ones, seemingly are just rolling over now to the downside. What's the impact to ARM if some of your more client businesses improve? I, I realize you have a bigger exposure to those. But as far as implied royalty revenue rates, those sorts of things, it's the automotive and the industrial IoT side of things weaken. Can you make up for that with the, uh, the mobile side of things, the client side, or are there trade-offs that uh, we all need to appreciate? Uh, our expectations are the combination of um, increasing B9 uh, products that actually are starting to ship, because we're, you know, we're still on the royalty side, we're still in the relatively early days of B9 shipments. 
um, you know, it, think of it as being probably somewhere in the like 10% or so of our of our royalties are are shipping with V9. So as as you know, since we start, since really a lot of these designs were sold over the past couple of years, those products are really just starting to make the, uh, come to market now. So so that's certainly going to be um, a, a tailwind to growth, both you know as we see recovery in units, but then also as we see these higher rates flow through. Um, there's also a lot of uh, there's a lot there's there's some strong growth drivers certainly happening in the infrastructure business where um, you know certainly while the industry had been a bit slow uh, in this last year things seem to be picking up and then obviously with all of the different hyperscaler AI efforts there's there's a lot going on there um, uh, and so we're going to continue to gain share on the on the uh, infrastructure side specifically on the cloud compute side. Uh, auto is an area where um, we we've also seen pretty strong gains. Uh, I, you know, I, certainly the market. I, I think our expectations won't be as strong as it's been over the last year or so. I think their you know inventory levels have probably caught up a bit more. Um, and so at least from a I'd say from an auto inventory, not a chip inventory perspective. Um, and, and then you know our expectations are I think similar to yours. We don't expect IoT to be a big growth driver in the near term. Um, I think uh, you know certainly could be further down the road as we see what AI uh, does for edge computing and whatnot. But for right now, probably not a strong growth driver for next year. So that's that's I'd say kind of a how we're looking at it on a lob by lob basis. Um, and we'll certainly let you guys know as we as we learn more and progress throughout the year. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Pierre Ferragu with New Street Research. Your line is open. Hey, thanks a lot for taking my question. Um, I'd like to come back to um, to OPEX. Uh, I mean, you've, you've given a lot of clarity on numbers. Thanks a lot for that. But my question is probably a bit more generic. Um, so if we say like Q4 to Q4, your OPEX has increased by, um, will have increased by about like 20, 20% or so. Um, I'd like to better understand like the operational drivers of that increase and in general how your OPEX is increasing. Maybe I have like too much of a simplified view of your model, but to me you spend a lot of OPEX on developing products and then after that you license these products and then after some time these licensed products end up into the products of your clients. And so I would have expected OPEX, you know, to grow very early in the process and not really at that point in time um, when actually your licensing activity is very, very rapid and, and um, the next stage is for your clients to actually integrate uh, your IP um, in their product. So there is probably um, an element of the model that I'm missing and I'd love if you could uh, help me better understand that. And so, and also one thing that could help is to give us a sense of that increase in OPEX, is that almost exclusively um, product development like R&D or actually is there a lot of like business development and uh, managing client relationships um, within the, the start of this new licensing program that maybe we are missing the way we understand it? Go ahead. Uh, um, thanks for the question. Uh, so first, uh, yeah, so if you look back over the last year, we've added about 17% uh, increase in headcount, uh, about 1,000 people. 85% of those heads are in R&D. Uh, and so, uh, so while there may be some GNA and some sales, whatever, we're, it's, we're talking about a, it's 15% as, as everything that's non-R&D. And, and our total R&D as a, as a headcount and a percentage of total OPEX runs about 80%. So, um, so we're, I'd say, you know, pretty consistent in terms of, uh, of our overweighting towards building capabilities, future capabilities. Uh, and and most of this R&D, to your point, we, we, when we're um, the R&D teams are creating designs and um, you know that we're then of course selling, but we're constantly working on you know the next evolution. Right now, what's been happening over this last year, and the reason why there's been such a, a significant amount of hiring, is because we you know as we started selling the compute subsystem capabilities, because that's that's certainly what customers have clearly been and partners have been looking for from us, that's required us uh, to build a solutions engineering team 
which is a bit of a new muscle for us. And so that team uh, went from, I'd say, very, very small a year ago to now, you know, about a thousand people. And so, uh, so that's been a big area of hiring and a lot of the contracts and a lot of the royalties that we're going to get from uh, those hires, we're going to start seeing really not until we get into uh, our fiscal year in 26, um, as we talked a bit about during the roadshow. So, so, uh, so it is to some extent some forward investment, um, and uh, you know, but but there is uh, you know contracts. I think someone earlier asked uh, the question that you know we had something like 81% of our of our royalty contracts were already signed for FYE 26. So the vast majority of, of the benefit we're going to get from them has has been signed, but will not ship until we get into late 25 and early 26. Yeah, and as far as the product development cycle goes, um, yeah, your, your question is a very good one relative to how to think about product development and, and cycle times. We put out products very, very frequently. Uh, the, mo the mobile and PC world, they need to see new CPUs uh, every single year. They need to see new GPUs every single year. So we're, we are developing the next ge generation product uh, and releasing something literally on, a, on an annual beat. The hyperscaler market uh, is probably every uh, two years, but we also do performance cores and efficiency cores on a bit of a TikTok basis. And then automotive cores are probably anywhere between two to two to three years. So our people are always working. <laughs> and I would also say that well, one of the things we did during the SoftBank years uh, to invest is we actually got out of a number of commodity businesses that we were in, such as video IP, display IP, where we were highly um, undifferentiated, and used those resources to develop a Neoverse CPU roadmap and to develop a automotive AE roadmap. AE is a automotive enhanced, including functional safety. So there is a constant treadmill of products and CPUs and GPUs and NPUs that are being developed. And then to Jason's point, when we start to put those into subsystems, that's a new uh, output uh, and a deliverable. So the IP group provides those IP cores to the solutions engineering group, which is then essentially the group responsible for stitching them together as a subsystem. So it is a, an ongoing uh, engineering flywheel that, that does not abate. And uh, as I said, relative to the, the broader market demand, we're, we're nowhere close to good enough. Uh, people want smaller, smaller, faster, better all the time, uh, which is what we're working on. Thanks. That's very, very clear. And like this, like subsystem engineering uh, really answers um, the, the question I had. Uh, maybe one quick follow-up, if I may. Um, if I look at where you're guiding and how it compares to um, like the uh, sales side consensus, um, you're kind of quite significantly higher on uh, on OPEX for Q4. And so my question here is um, uh, maybe a bit provocative, but does that mean that the sales side analyst didn't listen to you carefully enough during the IPO process and mismodeled a bit uh, OPEX in the near term? Or does that mean that today, compared to three months ago, you've actually built up OPEX faster than what you were thinking uh, uh, three months ago? I, I can answer that. Um, the short version is the, the assumptions back, uh, 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 back when we had Analyst Day in early August was for a lower stock price than we actually uh, ended up uh, issuing most of the equity at. Uh, and um, also I would say higher social security taxes, especially in the UK where they're about 2x higher than they are in the US. Um, and when we flow through the increased stock price and then we flow through the increased uh, taxes, uh, that's the driver. So it's not a it's not a uh, an ongoing um, cost uh, you know cost driver that's why there's our, our expectations are still to deliver um, you know somewhere in the 40 percent range of non-gap operating margin um, you know in the near term in this year and we still have a long-term target that will be you know getting to the 60 percent range there's no change to those those targets uh, it's the short-term aspects of dealing with some of the IPO related costs which um, you know just ended up being a, a little higher than we had uh, previously forecasted Thank you. Very clear. Thank you. One moment for our next question. 
Our next question comes from John DeFucci with Guggenheim Securities. Your line is open. Thank you, and thanks for taking my question. My first question it has to do with the related party revenue, which was flattish year over year, versus the, rev the rest of the revenue was up just almost 40%. Can you provide more color around the license versus royalty mix for the related party business and, and how we should think about that going forward? Sure. Uh, uh, thanks for the question, John. So related, the related party uh, revenue is Arm China. Uh, where all you know, we have a, a couple hundred customers in China that are all aggregated and and treated as one, uh, based on how the joint venture was set up. Um, you should think of uh, so China did uh, you know it still grew. Uh, kind of, I call it in the in the low single digits, but as a percentage of total, it fell from about 25% uh, in the more in, in the you know most recent period down to about 20%. Uh, and that's just because the rest of the world just grew so much faster. Uh, in terms of the mix of um, uh, of loyal uh, of, of license versus royalty, uh, think of it as being uh, pretty close to you know 50 50. A little, little over 50 percent is license, a little less than 50 percent is uh, is royalty. But all of that revenue for Arm China is treated uh, as 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 other. Uh, because of the fact that the way the, the, the arm China joint venture is structured. Got it. Okay, great. Thanks, Jason. That, that's, that's really helpful. Um, and, and well, actually, how about going forward? How should we be thinking about that mix going forward for, for arm China? I, I think the mix is pretty similar. It's, it's, they, they historically, at least that's, that's the color we have right now. They've historically been, uh, I'd say closer to 50-50 uh, than the rest of the world, which is closer to 40 to 40-60, 40% license, 60% um, uh, royalty. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, we'll we'll certainly update you if we see a change, but th that's our expectation. Uh, I'd say for at least the the back half of this year. Okay, great. And 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 for a second question, when we think about the guidance for next quarter in the year, uh, obviously the macro backdrop has an effect, and and you guys have your own crystal ball. I guess every, we all do, and uh, and it has an effect on both license and royalties. But the royalty part is really something you probably have less control over and, and visibility into that timing. Even though there were a lot of questions here on, on license, which is probably you have more visibility there. Um, Jason, you did hit on the royalty visibility in one of the questions, but I just want to make sure I understand what's implied in guidance in regard to, to units. And I know there's a lot of other things that affect royalty revenue that are um, most of which are going in the right direction. We can all see an industry analysts forecasts for units and that's you know we don't you guys have intimate relationships with your customers so you can have even better visibility into that but uh, i'm just curious are you assuming when you look at industry analyst estimates on units are you assuming about the same a little below or even perhaps a little even better or do you just see things a little bit better than than industry analyst estimates Sure. So, okay. So here's what I would say. So in this quarter we just reported, we were minus 5% on royalty. If I compare that to our three best comps, at least closest in terms of mix, uh, you could look at MediaTek, uh, you could look at Qualcomm, and you could look at TSMC. Those guys were all between minus 11 to minus 24%, you know, as they just reported the last few weeks. So, so we were we, we, you know, so we had stronger growth than those guys, primarily because of our our share gains that we're seeing in infra and auto, uh, and then also in some part because, uh, or in part because of the ARM V9 adoption. So yep. we are expecting that, you know, the, and they, I think those guys, as well as uh, Counterpoint from the other you know, industry analysts, um, all seem to be kind of triangulating around, you know, flipping to positive sequential growth in this current quarter. Uh, or I'm sorry, last quarter, and then in the current quarter, expect, expecting to see that get kind of in the high single digits, approaching double digit range, and that's that's pretty consistent with what we're expecting. And then same for Q4. So so I you know from everything I can see, and you know we we do get paid royalties on you know seven plus billion uh, chips per quarter, so we, we do see quite a bit from a bunch of folks. Um, as far as I can tell, we're 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 kind of all triangulating relatively similar uh, s similar impacts. I think the difference probably are our B9 uh, rates, 
is maybe the piece that is why we uh, typically grow a little bit faster than maybe some of the others. Does that, does that Great. answer? Yeah, that, that's really helpful. Thank, thank you very much, Jason. Great. One moment for our next question. Our next question comes from Matt Ramsey with Cowan. Your line is open. Um, yes, thank you very much, guys. Um, I guess my, Renee, my, my first question is just the, the phenomenon we've seen with, with Gen AI computing in the last 12 months or so. Um, I, I just wanted to get your take on what it may mean for ARM. Is it, do you view it, I mean, maybe the balance of, of it as a positive catalyst in that it can pull forward a bunch of sort of ARM server designs that might be host for accelerators in the data center and and, um, and things like that, or um, or do you have concern that that maybe it, it limits or shrinks the CPU TAM that that you can grow into organically? How, how do you think the puts and takes of that are? Thanks. Yeah, no, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Uh, I think it's broadly a positive, um, and the reasons for that are as more and more of these LLMs are being used in cloud data centers for training, the Obviously, any accelerator or GPU needs a CPU, that's sort of table stakes. Then when you drill down one level deeper in terms of what is the type of CPU that you need, uh, you need something that's energy efficient, you need something that's very, very low power, something that uh, you can customize in terms of an, an overall system. Then it gets very interesting because when you look at TCO, but more importantly, uh, total system power, by actually developing an custom ARM-based SOC that can interface with one of these accelerators, you're actually able to get a, a very, very high degree of customization relative to power efficiency and throughput. The, one of the, the biggest power um, requirements or, or, or beasts that, from these applications is actually in terms of feeding the engines, its memory bandwidth. So if you can design something that's actually custom that can interface uh, into the accelerators that can be hugely beneficial. Uh, I think, as you know, there's a lot of work going on inside uh, the community today developing custom ships that are ARM-based, so I think that's only a, a net positive. Then when you layer on top of it, the, the leading player, leading actor in that field on accelerators is obviously NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA has been doing us uh, a big benefit in terms of making the CUDA drivers uh, for the A100 and H100s available on ARM. So whether you're using a standard product from, from an Ampere or building a custom chip based upon ARM-based cores, I think this uh, generative AI workloads being pushed onto AI clouds is a, is a tailwind for ARM. We're pretty, we're pretty excited by it. Um, thanks, Renee, for that. Um, as my follow-up, I think in another question, Jason, you, you spoke a little bit about ARM China. Um, in given all the things that are going on regulatory-wise, uh, I wanted to step back a bit, and you guys control um, the, the, the IP that gets given to Arm China for them to then do things with a license into China, and, and the royalties come back out the other end. I, I guess what I want to get a little bit more granular on, given the dynamic environment we're in, is just what kind of visibility do you actually have through the structure of Arm China into the, the forward licensing trends and then um, from an audit perspective, the, the royalties that are coming out um, on, a, on a sort of quarterly basis, just like the level of visibility you have to sort of the operations that go on within that organization as, as IP goes in and royalties come back out. Yeah, so I'll let, uh, Matt, I'll let Jason kind of comment on the audit, audit component and also sort of the integrity of the information that comes back. But just a couple of things I wanted to note on, on Arm China so that, uh, that you uh, and the rest of the group can understand. First off, from a delivery standpoint, uh, when Arm China signs a contract with a PRC customer, uh, the IP actually goes from Arm Limited directly to the customer. It doesn't go into Arm China, so they are not a, a holder, if you will, of the product. The product is, is essentially downloaded directly from our servers to, to the end customer. Secondly, for many of the high-value designs, particularly whether we're working in the networking space or the cloud space or, or automotive, they're generally working with our latest edge technology. And because of that, there is a lot of interaction between uh, the customers in China, the Arm China salespeople, 
and arm limited marketing and engineering. So we have really, really good visibility in terms of when these large strategic deals are being consummated. Because generally speaking, uh, everything around demand creation and the technical interactions between the engineers at the customer and the engineers at ARM uh, is something where you have complete visibility into. So we have a very, very good idea of when uh, large deals will close in China just by the nature of the, the relationship between our engineers, the partners engineers, and the sales folks for uh, uh, ARM China. I'll let Jason talk about audit and things of that nature. Yeah, so we, we uh, the ARM China customers uh, run through the same process that all the rest of our customers run through, and that is there's royalty audits uh, that are conducted after the fact, um, and and again, that's no different than any other of our customers globally, and you know, occasionally there's findings, and we work through those findings, and uh, and then get recoveries or adjustments, um, and that process uh, works well. Uh, second, we also have audits uh, from uh, from independent auditors. So uh, Deloitte and Touche uh, does independent audits of uh, Arm China, uh, and they go through the you know the same uh, set of audit requirements that the rest of Arm uh, and, and SoftBank goes through for that matter. So uh, all of that work is done. Um, you know, in parallel, and uh, and I would say the integrity information and and um, uh, and the responsiveness and, and all that is is really uh, the same for Arm China as it is for all the other regions um, and parts of the organization that we work with. Thank you, guys. Uh, really helpful. Thank you. One moment for our next question. Our last question comes from Sarah Russo with Bernstein. Your line is open. Great. Thanks for taking my question. Hello, Renee, Jason. Um, so it's been about three years since you, you launched Flexible Access, uh, more than three years and about three years since Total Access has launched. Um, and the letter gave some, some helpful details around, you know, slight increase in ACV. Um, just wondering, for renewing customers, are you seeing any trend on increasing IP adoption because they're sort of into an all-you-can-eat to subscribe mode? And for those renewing customers then after they've been in, in total access for a while, are you seeing any increasing spend um, from, from those total access customers? Yeah, so total access, as you recall, about three years ago that we, uh, that we rolled that out, and we've seen a few, few things happen um, as the program has um, launched. One is customers that uh, were initial adopters of it, when they've gone up to the next cycle, they've actually taken a, a larger consumption, either more tape outs uh, and or more IP. Uh, secondly, uh, the, the program is, has worked extremely well from the standpoint of it reinforced what we kind of believed going in, uh, and that is the, the, the churn rate for our large partners is, is, is pretty small, if not zero. Uh, the um, the mean uh, is around 16 years. The median is 19 years of just the longevity of the relationships that these partners have with ARM. Uh, it's allowed our FAEs to be much more involved and engaged in terms of uh, pull through of other IP. And then, as, as mentioned earlier, uh, particularly with everything going on with uh, with AI and such, it's sort of really, really moved the dial. So. ATA has been everything we hoped it would be and probably a bit more. Uh, it's, it's removed a lot of churn in terms of the sales cycle. And, and for the partners, uh, it's very, very easy for them because they, they do subscriptions around EDA tools. Uh, they'd rather, they know, they know they're going to spend money with ARM. Uh, as mentioned, many of these customers have been with, with ARM 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So it's been a, it's been a pretty natural evolution on that. So the program, the program, I would say, has exceeded expectations. Um, I would hope over time that we would get the vast majority of all our partners on this. I think we will, uh, because A, there's very little churn to, to our business, and B, it, it puts all the resources in the right place in terms of having people accelerate the tape out of chips. That's great, and maybe just a quick follow-up. As part of that program, are you, because you're working with customers slightly differently, are you getting more visibility into to customer design programs such that 
it gives you you more confidence on on sort of forecasting royalties and what you expect to see from from a royalties perspective than maybe what you got in in the more traditional licensing models. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that was a um, a byproduct of that, and I would say combination of industry trends slash total access is compute subsystems. Because once we started to get involved with partners more deeply, we started to understand exactly what their tape out schedules were, uh, exactly what they were trying to use from a process standpoint, what libraries they were using. Uh, we were suddenly in a completely different domain relative to how we were interacting with partners in terms of schedules. So what, it, what it's done for us is I think it's accelerated uh, subsystem uh, engagements and at the same time, uh, our understanding and visibility of, of customer programs uh, is at a, a level that we've never had before. That's great. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. That concludes the question and answer session. At this time, I would like to turn the call back to Renee Haas, CEO, for closing remarks. Okay. Uh, thank you, Abigail. And on behalf of uh, myself, uh, Jason, and Ian, I'd like to thank everyone for their uh, Excellent, thoughtful questions. Um, this was the first time around for us uh, in terms of as, as a trio doing this. Um, we'll get better each time, but thankfully we had a very good quarter to come off uh, on and talk about, which, which made the job a bit easier. Uh, as mentioned before, uh, we're uh, very, very excited about the prospects going forward, uh, very, very excited about the opportunity, and look forward to uh, continuing to engage with you all. Thank you so much. Thank you for your participation in today's conference. This does conclude the program. You may now disconnect. <laughs>